Acts chapter 9 is where we're at, church, so I want you uh, to turn there. If you would, if you're new or uh, don't own a Bible or forgot your Bible or want a paper one for a change or anything like that, reach for one in the uh, seat in front of you and you're welcome to open up there. Um, Anyone in this room ever be on the yearbook committee, help produce a yearbook when you were in high school or currently are? All right, we have one here in the front row. So the rest of you, this will be an exercise in... uh, in missed opportunity, where you get to go back and, and do that thing that you always wanted to do but never got to do. Uh, in yearbooks, they often have uh, people voted most likely to blank, right? I want you right now to just do a thought experiment with me, and I want you to think through who is it on your list. I want you to come up with a single name, and I don't want you to share it. You don't need to write it down. I just want you to think about this, but who is it on your list right now if you were to say, Who is on your list who would be voted most likely to never become a Christian? Okay? I want you to think of that right now. Again, don't shout it out. Don't nudge your neighbor. Like, just, like, thought experiment. Who is it that you go, man, I don't know that this person would ever choose to follow Christ. It may be a family member. Um, It could be a friend that you know well and have been praying for for a long time. Um, maybe it's sort of like a media personality, like a celebrity or someone who openly mocks Jesus. Uh, we have plenty of those just in our culture that hate the things of God and are very open about it. Uh, maybe, maybe it's you. Maybe there's someone sitting here going, that's pretty much me. Maybe that's, that's uh, who's on your list. Here's what I want to do this morning. We've already, we've already sung, it's just amazing how the Lord works. We've already sung some amazing truth, haven't we? We've talked about some really powerful truths. I love sitting in the front, uh, mix it up once in a great while, sit in the front and sort of let the congregation, let their voices sort of wash over you. It's powerful um, to hear you, church family members, sing out some of these uh, core truths that actually define our life. They guard our life. Uh, They give us life. They really are our life. But I want to remind you what is obvious through the whole library of Scripture. It's also obvious in history. And if we just took the time this morning, we could hear it from our history here in this collected group of people. And that is that we should expect the unexpected from God. Right? We should expect the unexpected when it comes to God. His ways are higher His work is mysterious. As a creative, God is always coming up with the nuanced and the new. But he's not just a creative, God is also constant. What that means is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we're going to see this theological idea. In fact, if you want to write this down and do some more research, you can. Some of you theological nerds are like, I know that. Pick me. I can define it. But here's the, here's the term. Effectual calling. Effectual calling. That's the theological idea we're going to get to. And let me give you the shorthand. Here's the shorthand. There's sort of a cultural phrase that people use. It's the come to Jesus moment. Have you heard of that? It's my come to Jesus moment. Well, effectual calling is that your come to Jesus moment is only made possible because first, there was a Jesus came to you moment. So anyone's come to Jesus moment is never them seeking out God. The Bible couldn't be more clear. 
You would not have a come to Jesus moment unless Jesus came to you. Not in your notes, but write down John 6.44. That's Jesus on good authority of what I just said. So let me review from a couple of weeks back. I really enjoyed getting to use our product called YouTube. Um, I got to watch the sermon last week, so um, Jim was up here. It was really great to just um, get to enjoy the technology that allows us to participate in worship even when we miss. And yes, we know that we went to Acts 10 last week and we're back at Acts 9 this week. Um, That was not a typo. That's just how it landed. So um, can I get, there we go. Um, from a few weeks back, there is a right side of history. Uh, in fact, God not only knows that, uh, but he's revealed at least a part of what the right side of history is on. And literally, he has, he has spelled out bits of it. So there are things we can know about history, where it's been, where it is, and where it's going, quite simply because God has told us. He's put some things in writing. Today we get to Saul, who is definitely on the wrong side of history. He saw the light, literally. He changed teams to the right side of history. And fundamentally, what happens in Acts chapter 9 changes the course of history. That's the chapter we're in. In all of the Bible, We're in a chapter that fundamentally alters the course of everything that follows, including what we're doing here in this room today. I'm not overstating it uh, by, by saying it that way. The book of Acts is laid out somewhat geographically, and so we're preaching it that way. Remember Jesus' final command to his disciples? It's called the Great Commandment. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And he says this. He says, you will be my witnesses. And then this is how Acts is laid out. After an introductory first chapter, chapters 2 through 7 are in Jerusalem, And then we're smack dab in the middle of 8 to 12. Chapters 8 through 12 are Judea and Samaria. So it's beginning to kind of spread. And then really the whole rest of the book begins to explore what does it look like to go to the uttermost parts of the world. And who's instrumental in that? A guy named Paul. Well, before Paul was Paul, he was Saul, right? So that's what we're looking at today. Um, Origin stories. These are just a huge sort of genre of movie right now, and um, I want to just say a couple of things. First of all, can we agree that not every character who, who has ever landed on film needs his or her own origin story movie? I mean, some of these are getting a little bit money grab, like they're just getting a little weird, like some of them where it's like, I don't know if we need it. Saul needs his own origin story. That's why we actually have a lot about Saul. He's such an important figure in the story that his origin story makes a lot of sense. Here's the second thing. Um, Does anyone know the original origin story movie or book? Anyone? I don't either, and Google didn't know easily. I just sort of, my brain goes down these little rabbit trails. I'm like, what's the original origin story? I don't know what it is. So if you find out, please let me know. Uh, But I didn't waste too much time on that. Um, But what's kind of funny is that It's uh, like prequels and origin stories aren't all that new in some ways, but they're just huge right now. Uh, The more I just sort of thought about it, I was sort of like, you know, nerding out on that. So um, we we are in Saul's 
origin story. Let me rattle off a couple of things. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to stay in Acts 9. However, I'm going to grab from a lot of places. We know a ton about the Apostle Paul. Um, He wrote much of the New Testament, and so there's all kinds of places where he's actually self-commentating on on his his own story and kind of where he came from. So let me rattle off a couple of things that aren't necessarily in our text today, but it sort of sets the stage. So Paul was uh, born the son of a Pharisee. And, uh, and he was destined to follow in his father's footsteps. Dad was a Roman citizen, which turns out to be a really big deal. We learn that sort of later on. It's also a really huge advantage for what Paul ends up doing. Mom of Paul, unknown. Sorry, on Mother's Day, we should have more on Paul's mom, but we know nothing about Paul's mom whatsoever. So sorry, moms, no nod to Paul's mom in the story. He grew up in Tarsus, which is in Turkey, Uh, He learned tent making as a trade. From Tarsus, he goes away to college and he goes to Jerusalem. And this is a fairly common thing, but he goes to Jerusalem, studies under the rabbi Gamaliel. We know that. And here is how Paul describes his own origins and his own, like, listen to his personality. Listen to sort of what made up Saul at this time. Galatians 1.13 says this, Paul saying about himself. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the ways of the traditions of my fathers. So young man Saul is like all-star first string at Judaism. In terms of keeping the law, this is the guy who's, who's excelling above all of his peers. Now, here's what's fascinating. At the same time he's doing that, he is fundamentally working against God. You can excel and get the, the nod of your peers and be diametrically opposed to the ways of God. After saying, put no confidence in the flesh, Paul saying that, he says this of himself at that time in his life, okay? So he, the teaching is, none of this stuff matters. I excelled, I got great grades at the stuff that doesn't matter. But listen to his resume. Philippians 3, 4 says this. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. There's the throwdown right there, right? Hey, any of you want to stand up to my challenge? You think you should put confidence in flesh? I have more than you. I beat you. And then he gives his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is giving this this resume of who he was. You don't get to these places. Some of them you get by birth, but some of these you get by a lot of hard work. He was a hard worker. He was an overachiever. He was a religious zealot. Notoriously, Saul was there assisting and approving of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the end of chapter 8. Remember that from a few weeks back? Paul is a really stark warning that sincere religious belief does not save you. Let me say that again because this is confusing 
to a lot of people. I don't think it's confusing to most of you, but sincere religious belief does not save you. It doesn't matter that you're really, really, really sincere. It doesn't matter that it's religious and not secular, just non-religious. It doesn't just matter that you have faith, but who or what you have faith in. We know this. We know this from all the rest of life. But there's a weird thing that goes on, and I have these conversations with people on a regular basis. That's really good for you, pastor. That's really good for you, Christian. You have your sincere belief. I have mine. Have you heard this? Maybe some of you are thinking this right now. I'll say it again, that sincere religious belief does not save. Paul's a really clear warning of this. Guess what? All religions are not fundamentally the same. Are there similarities in the world's great religions? There are. are there, is there truth found in almost every religion or system of belief? There is. But it's at these key differences that there are uh, those pieces that find you working against God. So Paul reveals you can be dead wrong and think that you are so right that you would kill doing God a favor when you're actually working against God. So, that's Saul's upbringing. Now he's in full hunt mode. Look at Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that's an early term of Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let me stop for a moment. Hear me really clearly. State-sponsored intolerance is nothing new. State-sponsored intolerance is absolutely Nothing new. Silencing hate speech against Judaism by any means necessary. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 9. If you're a Christian, this is our history. Systems, world systems, will embrace us until they don't. They will tolerate you, Christian, until they can't. Then they will try to silence you and intimidate you, which doesn't happen. And then they will imprison you. And they will make it First uncomfortable, then illegal to simply, believe, to, to simply believe in Jesus, to be a Christian. It is Ill- illegal around the world right now to be a Christian in many, many places. Five years ago, for sure ten years ago, I would say from this very stage, ideas like, I think we see this storm coming. I think we see this on the horizon. We can sort of smell little whiffs of this. Doesn't it feel different right now? It feels different because many of us have very personal stories of how this is true. We were embraced for a season. We were tolerated for a season. We have stories of silence and intimidation. We're not quite yet at imprisonment for me standing here in a public space. Hi, YouTube. And just speaking the plain message of Jesus. But it doesn't seem far-fetched anymore. We see this in the early church. 
Remember in Acts chapter 4, um, the disciples, Peter specifically, greatly annoyed the Supreme Court. He greatly annoyed them. And we asked this question, when is it right to greatly annoy your leaders? I grew up annoying all kinds of leaders. Much of it was sin and weakness. I had to repent of it. When is it right? Here's the simple litmus test. It is great to annoy your leaders and those in authority when it greatly honors Jesus. That's your litmus test. I tell my kids, you, you do obey the people in your life who are set over you. But what if they're wrong? You do obey the people over you unless it greatly honors Jesus that you greatly annoy them. This is so fantastic. It says, but in order that they may that it may spread no further among the people, these are the leaders annoyed with them, scheming how to stop this thing. Let us warn them not to speak anymore uh, to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What did Peter do? He walked out and he preached in the name of Jesus. He just kept doing it. He's like a wee waddle. He just knocked him over. He just, whoop, comes back up. Aren't you here in the temple preaching? Didn't we tell you not to do that? Yeah, like, we just have to keep doing this. How about other places in history? Let me tell you about John. John was a commoner, and he was a Puritan preacher in 1600s England. He preached Jesus. People responded in droves, and the authorities panicked. John ends up in prison, and he is given a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know what it is? He promises to stop preaching Jesus. You stop preaching Jesus, you get out of jail free right now. Him rejecting that offer and refusing it extends his prison sentence, catch this, from three months to 11 years. From three months to 11 years. He has a get out of jail free card. All it is, is just would you shut up about the Jesus thing? Could you just stop that part? He says no. You know what John does? He uses his time wisely. He makes the most of his days because the days are evil. You know what you do in prison? I don't know. I've never been there, but you're right. I guess he had the ability to write. He wrote over 60 books. You may have heard of one of them called The Pilgrim's Progress. This is John Bunyan. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know what the second best all-time selling book in world history is besides the Bible? You guessed it. John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. It's translated into over a hundred languages. Who knew that God would use this confinement to minister to and inspire and teach thousands upon thousands of people in over a hundred different languages for hundreds of years? Remarkable. We see this today. Christian, this is our lot. Those in power seek to keep their power by shutting up the gospel. So don't be surprised that it's here. We never panic over this. God is in control. Sovereign means complete control. God's in control. And I hope you're inspired by seeing this chapter afresh. If you've read this many, many times, look at verse 3 now and see what, how God's working. Talking about Saul still. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So there is Saul and his uh, conversion story. I want you to look at this title pick for one second. Scared Straight uh, is what I called it. And um, there's a passage in the Bible that says this, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. Here's what I love about how God works. Yesterday, unprompted, unscripted in our family devotion time, the idea of the fear of the Lord came up. And it was under the, um, it was in the context of terror of the Lord, being afraid of God. And it led to this really, really good discussion about what fear of the Lord is. Now, I have this whole sermon in my mind. I know kind of where we're going with all of this. And I just love, I just showed my kids, I said, God does this all the time to me, where he just connects threads and things and ideas and thoughts. But fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What we have is this sense of a little bully running around with his little power and his little papers and all that, and he meets real authority. And all of a sudden, Paul is scared to death. He's scared straight. Why straight? Because it's the street called straight where he's going to end up. And Saul is like the rest of us. We are all born designed glorious, born crooked, until God makes us straight. That's the gospel message. We've been born cursed and crooked, and God straightens us out and sets us on our way. I want to show you um, something really powerful. You're going to have some opportunity to ponder for yourself and talk as a community group about your own origin story and your own conversion story. This is certainly true in my, in, in my situation, that God takes the Bible and he pairs it with people to change lives. Think about your own conversion story. The Bible's a big book. It's actually 66 books. In all the library of Scripture, there's a few verses that probably leapt out to you in that season. And of all the people on the whole planet, God didn't use every single one of them. He probably used a few key people. And we see that going on with Saul as well. God is always weaving others' stories into the working of your own story. He's taking these threads. It would all be really confusing if you weren't God. I'm glad God's doing it because it's a lot of story to keep track of. And yet somehow he's able to kind of work this all powerfully. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came here, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. A couple thoughts. Number one is this. We're going to see this over and over and over again. If you ever go to our exploring baptism class, what I will show you repeatedly from Scripture is this pattern. Saul gets saved. He puts his trust in Jesus, and he is baptized. He rose and he was baptized. Let me just say this really plainly. The formula for Jesus making disciples is go and make disciples baptizing them. Believe and get baptized. Believe and get baptized. Believe and get baptized. You just see this over and over and over. It's just like this little drumbeat going on. We've been having some baptisms of late. Isn't it exciting? It's so good. Whenever I'm at a wedding, I'm reminded of my own vows. It's like I just... I'm so moved to sit there and watch a couple get married. It makes me think back to my first love. I issue just the the command in the name of Jesus. Get baptized if you haven't been baptized. Let me make a couple comments about Ananias. Don't you love that Ananias is a disciple? He's available. Here I am, Lord. Comes to him, he says, here I am. Ananias models the real back and forth communication that goes on in prayer. Now, this is a vision that comes to him, but he's having this real back and forth with Jesus. Go do this. But Lord, don't you know who this guy is? Let me fill you in. I'm sure you don't have this news yet. It's a really dangerous guy. He's kind of scary. What's so amazing is Jesus doesn't like smite or smote. How do you do it? Smite Ananias right there and be like, I'm done with you. I need obedience. He does what a parent does. In our household, we strive for obedience that's right away, all the way, and don't grumble or complain. Yes, that makes the acronym rad. I'm a child of the 80s. Deal with it. Do we demand that every time? I hope not. We don't. In fact, many, many times we cheer and champion one of those getting right. You know, you did this without grumbling or complaining. Woohoo! Let's work on doing it right away. I asked you last week. Right? Let's, let's work on doing it all the way because it's not all the way. We've got to go back and deal with that. I just love how Jesus engages Ananias. He answers him back. He repeats the command. He doesn't say, oh, you're right. I totally forgot Saul's a psycho. He says, no, go. So that back and forth knowledge with the risen Jesus. Here's what I love about Ananias. He does what disciples of Jesus do. They hear and they do. It's not always bang, bang. It's not always right away. But he hears and does what Jesus says. Jesus says, do it. He's like, I don't think I should do it. That sounds really scary. Are you sure? Go do it. He gets up and he goes and does it. Verse 17 is powerful. Brother Saul. At the bidding of Jesus, he goes to Saul, lays hands on him, and calls him brother. This is no small thing. This is a Holocaust survivor going to a Gestapo officer, embracing and calling him brother. 
In verse 15, Jesus is laying out Saul's new life to Ananias. That he's a chosen instrument of mine. All new converts now belong to another. Our freedom as being no longer slaves to the master that is sin doesn't mean we're free and on our own any more than it's kind to give birth to a baby and just have the baby floating around the planet somewhere. We belong to another. Man, this is, this is great news for you today. You belong to the one who's risen, alive, and well, and all-powerful. He says he's going to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before Jews. What does Paul do? He does that. And he also says to Ananias, I think this is for Ananias. Ananias, trust me, go to this guy. And he's telling Ananias about Saul's life, about how much he's going to have to suffer for his name's sake. Friends, did did Paul the apostle suffer for Jesus' name? Immensely. You want another resume? This one now that's moving and deep and eternal lasting and really is his legacy? We're going to get to some of his, his Jesus resume that goes on about how much he suffered. Here's what I want to show you elsewhere. We're not even going to get to it today, I, I don't think. But Paul says elsewhere that from my mother's womb, you've called me. He recognized that all this origin story, all pre-conversion, God, you had your hand on me from the beginning. Jesus sees what we will become because of his grace. He calls men and women to cooperate with what he's doing in someone else's story long before they have any idea how it's going to change. There's probably people in your life right now that are very hard to love. You don't see what they will become because of God's grace. You don't have the vision for that. You don't have the faith for that. But God calls you to do things. Brother Saul, think about your own story. Who in your story would it be really hard to lay hands on in a loving way and call brother or sister? Who is that? The question is, are we Ananias? Are we available and in real conversation with the risen Jesus? I don't know if you caught it, but a few moments ago, right here on Jamie's countenance, we saw... The idea that God tells us what to do, but we don't know what will happen. She just let us in on that, didn't she? How can we not do this? Like, yes, of course we should do this. What else are we going to give our life to? But people, they last forever. Of course we should do this. But she was holding on to just some of the wrestling match. And that's, that's, a, picture of, that's a picture of us not in control of our own life of opening our will, of belonging to another, of being beckoned out to go do hard things that seem scary things, loving people who aren't completed yet. There's a fallacy going around that says something like this. It's the idea of the fact that you believe the way that you believe because of where you were born and the home that you were brought up in. It's meant to diminish two things. It's meant to to diminish the truth. Uh, In other words, that truth is just fluid and there's no real absolute truth. It's just a matter of kind of where you sprouted and grew up, which you have no control over. But it's also really diminishing, isn't it, to the fact that we are individual thinking people. 
who as we grow up, we continue to receive data and evidence and influence and experiences and feelings and all these things. And then we begin to think and make our own decisions. Richard Dawkins made this country. The, bo- the country that you are born in makes you believe that religion. Here's what's really fascinating. He's a famous atheist who disproves his own point. You know why? He was born in England, a Christian nation. He's an atheist. So what makes Richard Dawkins the ability to like see the light and the truth about atheism, even though he was born in that country? The reason it's false is this. Christian homes have Christian kids leave the faith all the time. And it works the other way. There are some of you sitting right here who are prodigals in your home religion. Some of you were raised to not believe in God, to not believe in religious nonsense, to not take everything by faith and not think for yourself, all kinds of messages like that. And yet here you are in church on a Sunday, beautiful Sunday. Why? It's because you have thought for yourself and seen evidence and made some discoveries, and so here you are. The evidence for the claims of Christianity is staggering. Jesus not only performed miracles, but predicted and accomplished his own resurrection, thus proving that he was God in human flesh. Meaning, whatever he says is true. I'm on that team. And whatever is said that doesn't align with what he says is true, or that he specifically calls out as false, is false. He's given the signs to have that kind of authority. On his authority, Jesus says, there is one way to the one true God. It's through me. There's one task for all of mankind to do. You want to know God's will for your life? There's one thing. Believe in the one that he sent. By the way, the one he sent, Jesus says, is me. That's the will of God. Paul's conversion is actually really, really remarkable. Think about what, would, what it would take for a good Jewish boy who had fully embraced his parents' religion and was excelling at it, violently persecuting anything that would rival his truth, and then convert him from a persecutor of Jesus to a preacher of Jesus in an instant. Jesus is real and alive. On the way into Damascus to stamp out Jesus' followers, he meets the risen, perfectly alive and well, all-powerful Jesus. This new revelation changed his mind, and a change of mind led to a change in every other part of him. Saul the convert would gain so many things that are new. I just jotted down a few this week. Here's a few of them. He would get a new name, a new theology, a new mission. He would gain a brand new power, the Holy Spirit. He would gain new methods, new teammates, a new worldview. He would gain brand new enemies and a brand new message. So convinced are these early Jewish disciples that they converted from centuries of tradition. Tradition! That's a lot. It's a big deal. It's clear that he fully embraced Judaism and in an instant chucked it. Why? Because 
It's true. He saw the light. New revelation completely changed his mind. What's more is these men and women paid for it with their lives. This is the tradition that as a Christian, I stand on. These are my ancestors who passed this down. Let me get on to the effect. What's the effect of this conversion story for Saul? First, I want you to notice the change. Just listen in case you, uh, or you can turn there if you'd like. Philippians 3, verse 4. I'll give you one second to turn there while I get water. Again, this is Paul commenting on himself. Listen to the effect of the conversion on his life. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in flesh, I have more. Gives his whole resume. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's British for garbage in order that I may gain Christ. My resume, my throwdown of all the confidence in the flesh that all of you are working toward, your ladder's on the wrong wall. It's nothing. I count all of that as complete garbage so that I could have Christ. That's the effect of conversion, friends. The first will become last. Saul went from boasting and keeping score, catch this, to utterly thrilled that he's in. He's in on the Jesus team. 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, he's talking about himself now. He's walking through the authority of the apostles. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What I want you to notice about the effect of conversion is that Paul's is as dramatic as it gets. But the effect, the lingering change, doesn't happen all at once. In an instant, Paul is transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. That's a theological term we call justification. He's made right from God in an instant. But then it takes a lifetime for him to be transformed to grow up into walking in the light. That's the idea of sanctification, right? So Paul made some pretty big strides. We're not going to have tons of time to get into it, but, but it's not just a smooth up and to the right as we sometimes think. I want you to look now as the persecutor becomes the preacher who then becomes the persecuted. Okay, this is the way of God. Look at verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him away by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And in a basket. 
Saul shows up at Damascus full of worldly power, full of worldly authority, the fear of man in his hands. He had the power to kidnap disciples and bring them back to Jerusalem. How does he leave Damascus? Humiliated. A humiliating rescue operation. He's now heading back to Jerusalem empty-handed, but filled with the Holy Spirit. In your notes, I'm going to shoot through eight conclusions that I made this week. They're going to go pretty quick, rapid fire. Just going to make a couple comments. These are just thoughts as I sort of thought about, like, Lord, what, how do we feed on this? How do, we, how do we grab hold of this? Here's what I know. Every single one of you has an origin story. Many of you in this church right now have a conversion story. And just like we see of Paul, we see that God redeems Paul from where he was. He actually is sort of bringing him back to his original glory. Yes, we die to our old self and walk in newness of life. But what happens is God God restores. Think about Paul for a second. Paul is still a determined and focused person. It's just now the, 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 the direction is all changed. Paul's still driven and outspoken about his beliefs. It's just now that God took him from the crooked path and the straight path and said, preach this, you've been getting it all wrong. God takes our origin and conversion, which is as unique as your thumbprint or fingerprint. All of us have a unique story and he can redeem it to glorify himself. I took this picture uh, probably around 6.30 this morning. It was blinding. I pull in with my little buddy Eli. I stop the Jeep. I'm like, I got to take a picture of that. Why? Because God's mercies are new every morning. We're talking about Paul being blinded by the light. I round the corner. I'm like, ah! Thank you, Lord. That's Acts 9 in a nutshell. I get it. His mercies are new every morning. Here's some old truth that's just brand new and fresh this morning for me. Jot these down. Number one, Jesus intimately identifies with his people. Why are you persecuting me? Who was Paul persecuting? Christians. And this is amazing news. The metaphor is bride and groom. You want to see, you want to see either bride or groom get really heated? Don't go after them. Go after their spouse. That's how Jesus identifies with us. Head and body. We're so linked to Jesus. That's powerful. That's what we are invited into. That's what you are in if you are a Christian. That's the invitation if you're not yet a believer. Number two, Jesus is alive and well and powerful. We sing about Jesus being alive. It's true. Saul had an encounter with the risen Jesus after he ascended earth. It's a really important, powerful theological idea. Here's the question. Have you? Christianity is not an encounter with ideas or with truth or with a philosophy or a practice, a way of living. Christianity is an encounter with the person of Jesus. My own conversion was more Saul-like than, than my wife's. My wife's was sort of gradual and subtle and on, over a span of time. Mine was scales fall off, I'm bored to tears in a church service, and... There's no blinding light, but Jesus is just saying, it's time. Come forward. Scales fall off. I want you to think about your own origin and conversion story and kind of how God has used that and how to make that available for his use. Number three, 
Jesus pursues us to confront us and then conform us. 1 Timothy 1.12 says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Paul writing, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formally, listen to how he describes, when you're confronted by the light, it's humiliating. It's disgusting. The very things you used to celebrate and say, look at me. You go, oh, please don't look at me. I'll tell you the mark of a true convert. They view their old life this way. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But God doesn't leave us there. That's not who Paul is. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Friends, you can run, you can ignore, you can deny, you can blame others. Jesus judges you faithfully. The light of truth hits you, whether by scripture or by conviction, and it's revealing. Here's number four. Jesus must be surrendered to for conversion to happen. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, you are not a follower. Saul learns he's not in charge like he thought. His mission was all wrong. He was humbled by blindness, humiliated by being led by the hand, forced to wait on God's timing and not his. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, I read this this week, so powerful. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. I surrender all. I give up. You're in charge. You're the real authority. You're the power, King Jesus. That's what it looks like. Number five, Jesus makes family from bitter enemies in a moment. The power of Jesus is such that enemies can embrace as brothers. There's no other force on the planet or universe that can bridge the divide that is amongst sinful people. I don't know if we've ever been more divided as a society. I've lived in San Jose my whole life. It's nothing compared to Jew-Gentile. Nothing compared to what's going on in the New Testament. The bridge, the divide is not too great for Jesus' love. That's amazing news. Number six, Jesus schools Saul, and it is stormy, costly, and took time. Just like your education, maybe going away to college, maybe you're still paying off college. Jesus educates us. Under Rabbi Gamaliel, Saul learned the law. Under Rabbi Jesus, Saul learned living. Read chapter 9 carefully. He goes away into Arabia. He goes away into the desert. Just like many of the people greatly used by God, he goes away for a while. In fact, for a few years, he actually ends up back in Tarsus. The church goes on and he's sort of lost track of for a little bit. We'll get to that. Number seven, Jesus prompts love or hate, acceptance or opposition. You either respond in humble worship or destroy the evidence of converts. So Christian, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal you are enduring. If you out yourself as a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled Christian, brace yourself 
right? In love. It's coming. You're one of those? All right, number eight. Take that name that you had at the very beginning and either repent for saying, I really do believe they're beyond the love of God or pray a fresh prayer for them because no one ever is beyond the reach of Jesus. Voted most likely in the universe to be a convert might be Saul of Tarsus. And he ends up writing the very Bible we're reading. Ben, would you guys come on up here right now? I want to bring it back to the fear of the Lord. He was scared straight. Listen to the word fear brought up again in Acts chapter 9 near the very end. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's our calling today, is to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a tension, there's a push-pull to that. And it's mysterious. But church, we are to have a reverent fear, terror of a holy God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ways in which we are schooled and trained in this life. God, I pray that everyone in this room can eventually find a a way to give thanks for their origin story and to ponder and avail their own conversion story for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name.